0: This morning, we're going to finish off our study in the book of Daniel, which means we'll be in Daniel chapter 12. If you're joining us this morning and you don't have a Bible on your person, there's one in the pew in front of you. Um, The book of Daniel, if you turn to 740, uh, in those, the pew Bibles, you'll find the beginning of Daniel and you can just turn over to chapter 12. Really briefly, I just wanted to tell you about what's next, what comes next after Daniel. Um, Starting next Sunday, for three weeks, uh, we're going to focus in on kind of the big questions of what is the church and who are we as disciples of Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons we're doing this series, which we'll call Blueprints for Disciples, um, is, is because a lot of the threads of those big questions are woven directly into our home group ministry. So as we relaunch our home group ministry starting next Sunday, we want to uh, launch with the broad vision uh, of, of what it means to be the church. Now, obviously that vision goes beyond what happens in our home groups. If you're not participating in a home group at this time, Um, That vision is still for you, it still speaks to your life, Um, but it will also be uh, laying out kind of the foundations of not just what is the church, but how we, personally, our church, is going to accomplish those things. And so I'd really encourage you uh, to, to make sure and be here for the next three weeks as we look at those things, and then just following that, we're going to begin a study through the Gospel of Mark. So that's what's coming. Here, in the book of Daniel... Um, we have been walking through the final vision that Daniel has been given. We've been in it for three weeks now because uh, it starts with kind of a preamble, a circumstantial preamble in chapter 10, and then chapter 11 in all of its girth uh, rolls out this vision, and we're still right in the middle of it now. It is very much the capstone to the book. It's the final set of prophecies the final vision that Daniel receives Um, at the end of this chapter the book is sealed the the visions of Daniel are done the ministry of Daniel he he uh, walks off the stage if you will Um, and in being so it is the most deep and explicit and intense if you read the book carefully you'll see that most of the visions that make up the book are overlapping intertwined. Um, the, the way I always like to think of it is it's, it's like using a microscope in a science lab. And so sometimes we're looking at it with the 10 time zoom, and sometimes we've zoomed in on a single portion of it, and we're using the 50 time zoom. Um, and so much can be gained by rereading it, and by, by uh, connecting the dots on those things. Where we're at this morning looks all the way down the calendar of the world, the calendar of humanity to the very last aspects, the very last facets. And as we do so, we encounter um, the, the final unique, unique trait about our God as king. Throughout the book, we've been comparing and contrasting the kingdoms of this world with the kingdom of Christ. We've been comparing and contrasting the king that we serve uh, and the kings, presidents and otherwise, that we serve on earth in the name of that king. And the last trait that I want to focus on uh, this morning is, is not one that we normally associate with royalty. It's completely unique. This morning we want to talk about our king, the giver of life. Okay. Now I want you to recognize that uh, a primary definition throughout the history of the world for the role of government has been the one who has the authority to take life. Okay, that's, that's part of the reason why government was initially formed was the protection and preservation of human life, which sometimes involves uh, justice, sometimes involves punishment, sometimes involves even capital punishment. When governments go south... This is the muscle they flex the strongest. This is the place where they're most likely to abuse that power. But even when they're doing well, Paul says in Romans 13 that they don't bear the sword, right, that's an instrument of death. They don't bear the sword in vain. It's part of their role. In fact, this is just, I I have no statistical evidence for this, but I was wondering to myself, is it possible that more deaths have come at the hand of governments than any other category that we could select. And remember how many things that involves. That involves warfare. It involves atomic bombs. It involves uh, not just the electric chair, but police shootings. It involves so many significant things throughout history. And so here... Uh, we should probably recognize that the king that we serve holds our life in his hands and takes it as he wills, that that is actually not, uh, not an incongruence with God our king, uh, with Jesus Christ. Um, in fact, Jesus speaking to this very issue says to his disciples, don't fear those who can take your life, who can kill you, and then that's it. That's the last thing they can do. That's the final stone they can throw. It's the final act we can make on earth against another person. He says, instead, fear him who, after you're dead, has the authority to cast you into hell. Now, those are strong statements. But the recognition is one of reality. Jesus is not making a threat. He's putting things in its context. Okay? But this morning, we encounter... Uh, this unique trait a trait that no king in history has had or will have one that changes the game the dynamic for us as human beings who live in the context of these overlapping kingdoms the kingdoms of this earth and the kingdom of God and that trait is that our God is capable of raising the dead okay read with me please in chapter 12 let's read the whole chapter together Actually, just to get a running start, I want to go back just one verse uh, in chapter 11 to verse 45, and then we'll read 12 through. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream, and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time times and half a time and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end all these things would be finished I heard but I did not understand then I said "O my lord what shall be the outcome of these things and he said go your way Daniel for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined but the wicked shall act wickedly And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. But go your way to the end, and you shall rest, and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Let's pray. God, as Matt shared with us this morning, you promised us that your spirit would guide us into the truth, would teach us your word, would illuminate us as spiritual men and women on the mind of God, which is your mind, Holy Spirit. And so I ask God that you would teach us this morning, and I pray, Lord, that you would give us what the early church fathers and the reformers called illumination, shed light on your word, shed light on who we are, shed light on our world, and shed light on this reality beyond the veil, behind the curtain, past our own funerals. We thank you for who you are, and we pray that we would discover it uh, in all of its fullness this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If I could, I want to draw your attention again to verse two, says many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Here Daniel is told that there's going to be a resurrection, that the dead will live, okay? In fact, he says that the dead are going to um, live again, and that that life will be everlasting in two different ways, one everlasting life and the other everlasting contempt. Um, this is the clearest passage on eternal life, the resurrection, the eternal state, heaven and hell, uh, in terms of what happens after death in all of the Old Testament. Okay. Now the hope for a resurrection is woven through all of the Old Testament and it's observable in places. Job says that he knows his Redeemer lives, and that one day he will stand face to face in the flesh with God. Uh, Abraham, when he's called to sacrifice his son Isaac, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us the reason why he was able to do that in confidence is because he knew that the God who had miraculously given his son could miraculously give him back in resurrection. He could raise the dead. Um, In the Psalms, it speaks of uh, this anticipation and this longing as if it will be fulfilled to the degree that it even talks about Jesus prophetically, like Dallas read this morning, that his soul will not see corruption and will not go down to Sheol, the place of the dead, the place of finality, the place of the end. But it's here in Daniel that the curtain is pulled back and we see past the end of history. It's here where we first see in the Old Testament everlasting life. And the thing we have to recognize is, um, as human beings, first and foremost, we're all future-oriented. None of us lives in the present. We all take steps heading somewhere. We all are thinking about where we're trying to get, that, get to and go there. We're all working for the weekend, at the very least, Right? This is how we are designed as human beings. We run, our fuel is hope. And so we set horizons and we march towards them. We dream and we pursue them, okay? That's by design. In fact, even in Ecclesiastes, it says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And I think one of the things that means is that we're constantly looking, constantly longing, the danger we have, then, is, is not um, dreaming too large, but dreaming too small. The danger is not uh, of setting a horizon that we'll never reach. It's, not, it's, it's failing to recognize the one we will surely hit. Okay. Very few of us are good at planning past our own funeral. That's what I'm trying to say. Now, if you don't believe that there is anything this morning after death all I want you to consider this morning is how that would significantly change your viewpoint. Okay. One of the things we struggle with greatly as human beings is our sense of mortality, the reality of death. Okay. But if, if the Bible is true, and if what Daniel sees is the reality, and yes, you may die, and then you will inevitably live and live forever, how does that change the name of the game? What significant impact does that make on your choices here and now? As we look through this passage and as he gets a look to the future, I think we get a pretty good understanding uh, for these things. And the first one I want to point out is is somewhat just implied. It's implied in this reality, okay? Here's here's what it is. Here's what I want to start with. If our king, the one we serve, is capable of, of raising us from the dead, then we need not fear those who could take our life. Right? I mean, it's a, it's a simple and obvious truth, but if our fate is often in the hands of government or others, if death is such an inevitable thing, and it is, we like to say it's death and taxes. The Bible says it's death and judgment. But both of them say that they're sure, that they're going to happen, that they're going to come. But but here we should recognize what has driven the church to stand fearlessly. Why church history is full of men and women who have chosen faithfulness to the God they've never seen in the flesh. Faithfulness to Jesus Christ who they believe in at the point of a sword of a government who demands their life right there. It's in this truth that we encounter the reality of uh, Polycarp, one of, the, uh, one of the early church fathers who was martyred in the first century, who was said, look, just, just recant, just deny, and we'll let you go. And he said, God, in Jesus Christ, has been faithful to me my entire life of 83 years. How can I show such unfaithfulness to him? And he died. If resurrection is here, then death is not the end. Then we can play a longer game. Then we can, like Paul, recognize in Romans chapter 8, that significantly, even when it comes to death, we have nothing to lose. Do you remember what he says? He says, I've come to the conclusion that neither sword, nor power, nor principality nor things that are, nor things to come, nor even death itself can separate us from the love of God. This is the God who gives life. Now he speaks here, and he speaks of a time that's coming, the time of the end, Um, As we saw last week in chapter 11, he sees all of history rolling out for 400 years from the life of Daniel into the pinnacle of the persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes, and then it moves on. The scene shifts all the way beyond the life of Daniel, beyond those 400 years, beyond our own present tense time right now. Uh, to the one that Jesus warns is coming, uh, to the event that Jesus takes out of this book in uh, Matthew 24 and says, when you see the abomination of desolation, then this time has come. Okay? He looks all the way beyond these things to the time of the end. And notice what he says in verse 1, at the time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has a charge of your people, and there should be a time of trouble such as there's never been, since there was a nation till that time. This reference here to a time that's worse than it's ever been, since there's been nations, there's not been a time like this, it says, is referred to many different ways in many different passages of scripture. Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus, once again, in Matthew 24, quotes this and refers to uh, the time coming on the earth that's worse than any time that's ever occurred before. Um, the book of Revelation lays it out as being this great tribulation. Okay. Um, all of this is coming. But after that, we see, it says at the set, tail end of verse one, but at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Okay. And so notice here, there's a recognition of a great difficulty and a coming through it. We've actually seen uh, imagery for this throughout the book of Daniel. Remember Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had to stand against the government of their day, who had uh, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had built a statue of himself and called all of those, uh, all of those in attendance to bow down and worship uh, when the music was played. And they said, no, we can't do that. We worship and we only worship the God of Israel. Uh, And so they go into this fiery furnace, a place of punishment and death, something that's to destroy them, and they come out the other end. They show up on the other side, not even smelling, it says, of smoke. The only thing that burns up in the fire is the ropes that bind them, okay? There's an intention in, in that story because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever that's to be said here. But notice here, the security is everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. The deliverance here doesn't rely um, upon them. It doesn't rely upon uh, their ability to hide or their ability to hold up. Uh, it relies just oddly here on a reference to a book. Now, the book of Revelation uh, draws this out as well and refers to it as the book of life. Verse 2 goes on to present a judgment, two categories, just like Jesus does when he says when the kingdom of God is set up, the king will separate all people into sheep and into goats, two categories. The book of Revelation does the same thing. It says, in fact, there are two books. One book will be opened and people will be judged on their behavior, what they've done, what they've thought, what their attitude was, the things that have done in life, but those whose names are written in the book of life shall have eternal life. Okay. When we as Christians talk about being saved as a category of being, as an existence, as a, as a state of being, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about, um, about being saved. We're talking about our names being written in the book. We're talking about having, as a pastor friend of mine used to love to say, a reservation in heaven. But once again here, um, look again at verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Okay. This is not just an afterlife, but a bodily resurrection. And this is something we need to understand. Oftentimes, as we think, even through a Christian lens in the modern American world, we think of heaven as being a place that is ethereal, a place that is disembodied. We think of our future as being an escape from the physical world. But if you look at Isaiah chapter 60, if you look at Revelation, what we're talking about is a new heavens and a new earth, a recreation of the physical world. In fact, Paul says, in the same way that Jesus was bodily resurrected, so also we shall bear the marks of the last Adam, the man from heaven. We will also be spiritual beings, but embodied spiritual beings. Okay. And so this is what's being talked about here. But I want you to notice how this reality weaves into the rest of life. And so the first thing I want to show you is if there is such a thing as resurrection, if even death is not the end, and there's life after death, then what we do here and now can have eternal significance. Notice what he says in verse 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Okay, do you get the picture in the imagery here? He's looking at the sky, a dark night sky, and he's thinking of the stars, how bright they are, how they shine. You know, if we had to give a category for this metaphor, we're talking about glory. Or sometimes I think a better word for than. then that for us today would be significance. Okay. Here it's talking about uh, a visible, significant, manifest difference. It's talking about glory. It's talking about um, significance in the sense that the things you are done are visible, beautiful, manifest. All of these words would be appropriate here. Two types of people are talked about here that will shine like the brightness of the stars, the wise and those who turn many to righteousness. Okay. So here's the thing um, that's so rough about the concept of death. It's very, very hard to ponder our own death, to stop at that place, Even if we spiral out past our own death to the death of our friends, our family, our nation, the human race, our planet, our universe, just follow that track long enough, it's really hard to find a place for significance. I had a pop culture class in um, community college, and I remember my professor talking about how one day he and his son decided just to build a wall on their property. Not because they needed a wall, but because they wanted to make something that lasts. Okay, that, that sense for significance, we all feel it all the time. Um, but the problem is, I wouldn't be surprised if that wall is crumbling today, 10 years later. Even if it makes 100 years, someday there will be no one to look at that wall and go, hey, that's a good wall. They did a good job, <laughs> right? There's no more audience. There's, there's no more thing. That's why, especially uh, as, as modern Westerners, we're so prone to despair and nihilism. It's why we ask, what does it even matter? What is it all for? Okay. Now, two things here. When it refers to those as the wise, the Bible maintains a pretty simple definition for who the, who the wise are. Uh, it contrasts in the book of Proverbs the wise and the foolish. Okay. And here's the definition of the foolish. The foolish are those who say in their heart there is no God. Okay. Now, don't just think of somebody who is conceptually an atheist, because as uh, as you are probably familiar, Proverbs is written to the Jews. Generally, all of them hold to a belief in the God of the Scriptures, and yet they still behave foolishly. In fact, you behave foolishly in your own life. It's not so much here about theoretical atheism as it is practical atheism. When you are wisely behaving in your life, you're playing. Playing out your life in reference to the reality of God. A fool says in his heart there is no gravity. When I was six, I was playing outside, and I found a rock about the size of my head, and I just decided to throw it as high as I could. Okay, now there's something about boys from the age of six to seventeen, sometimes twenty-one. Uh, where we have just no sense of consequence. And so I could tell you plenty of stories, but just this one. I I did throw it high enough that the rock disappeared onto the roof of my house, okay? And as I looked up, I heard the classic kathunk of a rock rolling down a roof, and I continued to watch, okay, until the rock struck me in the forehead, knocked me to the ground, and bloodied me, okay? Now, I was old enough to know what gravity was, But I didn't act like it. I didn't live in reference to gravity, okay? The wise here are the ones who know reality, and that includes the reality that this life is not all there is. That what you do now has eternal consequences. But notice the second category, though. Those who turn many to righteousness. Now, I want to be really clear here. There are a lot of wise ways to live, ways that are eternally significant, that involve your work, that involve things that you make and create, okay? Because they reflect the reality that is to come. If you're in the line of working in the justice system to bring justice now, there really will be justice someday, and that brings present tense to significance to the reality, Tim Keller points out that if you're a city planner and you're just trying to figure out how to make community work, Revelation says there is a perfect city to come, okay? And so there's significance to be found in all sorts of things we do in human life, but what we do with other people has a deeper significance, This is part of the story the Bible tells from the very beginning, that we are created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, the story of creation pauses. It's been over and over. God says, let there be light, and there was light. Let the waters be separated from the earth, and it was so. Let there be swarms of fish and sea life swimming in the sea. And then we get to 1.27, and instead of there being a let there be, there's a let us. Let us make humankind in our image and give them dominion over all of these things. It's different. It's unique. It's set apart. It's set apart in a couple of ways. First, because it's not just spoken out into the void and done, it's almost as if we're watching a stage play scene by scene and suddenly there's a conversation backstage between directors. Hey, you know what we should do? Let's do this. Then the second thing it says there that makes it unique is that human beings are created in God's image. All animals, all plant life, the world itself, the stars in heaven are all created to the glory of God, but only human beings are created in the image of God. And there's probably a lot of things that means. Wayne Grudem simply says that to be in the image of God means that we are in some way like God and that we are called to represent Him. And that's pretty good shorthand. But what I want to draw your attention to this morning is the us. God is triune, God is community. Even when the Bible says God is love, God didn't become love when he made someone to love in human beings. God was always love, perfect love, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are communal people in need of community, dependent on other people, because we are made in God's image for community, with him and with one another. That's why when Adam is made and he's all alone in isolation, how does God read that? Throughout all creation, uh, the whole creation narrative, it's been, at the end of the day, he said it is good, It is good, it is good. Now he looks at Adam in the garden and he says it's not good that man should be alone. We're designed for community. We're cultivated towards that. This is the reason why sometimes at our best we recognize that the most important part of our life are the relationships we have. That we can earn all the wealth that we want, but if we have no one to share it with and we eat our dinners alone, you know, our... um, What's the Batman meal? Lobster Thermidor? If we eat it alone, you know, in our big Wayne mansion, what is, it, what is it for? What does it mean? Okay. Jesus says something really interesting about money. He says, take unrighteous mammon and use it to make friends. Now, if you read that in context, he's not just recognizing the fact uh, that here on earth you can do that. He's recognizing this broader fact. He's recognizing what we're talking about here, the eternal significant impact that we have on other people. Listen, there's no getting away from the fact that when it says those who turn many to righteousness here, we're talking about evangelism. We're talking about seeing other people in our lives come to know Jesus as their Savior and switching from goat to sheep transitioning from those who are bound for everlasting contempt to those who are bound for everlasting life. It says those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever, they'll shine like the stars. You can do many things in your life that are significant, but here we're talking about something that's eternally significant. You can do many things in your lives that are fruitful, Beneficial. But here we're talking about something that is eternally fruitful. Okay. Gillette of Penn and Teller, he said once in an interview, and he is a very strong atheist himself, but he said, I do not respect those of any religion who do not proselytize. He said, if you truly believe that I am bound for hell, if you truly believe that judgment is coming and you don't tell me, How is that loving? How does that show any concern? Okay. Pendulette gets it. He doesn't believe that these things are true, but he understands the significance of if they are. There's a wisdom here. This is why Paul says that everything we do in life, all of it being built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, all of us are building right now. Some with wood, hay, and stubble, some with gold, silver, and precious stones, and it will all be tried by fire, and what makes it through the fire, wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up. But the gold, silver, precious stones, that'll be refined, be even more beautiful, shine like stars, right? This can seem condemning, but it is an incredible opportunity. Multiple times, Jesus tells stories about a master who leaves his wealth in charge of his servants and goes away and then comes back. That's our lives. That's where we live. We live in a time now and death is certain and death is coming and death is the end of the fourth quarter. It's the zero-zero on the clock. It's done. Okay. But we have an opportunity to invest where moths cannot eat, where thieves cannot break in and steal, right? we can invest in this way. All I'm asking this morning is that we as a church, when we wake up in the morning, reset our horizon to this horizon, that we see those around us as eternal beings, not just neighbors who moved into our city and will be gone in two months but people who have eternal destinies like ours. I think there's more to draw out of this passage. Verse three, uh, verse four, but you Daniel shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And so he tells Daniel that these prophecies are not for right now. That this end is coming and it's coming closely but Daniel's not going to see in in his life. When it talks here about a seal, we know what this is like from the book of Je- uh, Jeremiah because we see Jeremiah do something similar. He makes a prophecy about the impending 70 year judgment that Daniel is living in. And he writes it down on two pieces of paper and one of them he puts in an envelope and seals and the other remains open. Okay. What is, what is the point of the seal there? It's to testify to the validity of the prediction. Okay. Because when these things come to pass and they go, is this really what Jeremiah said? There's this sealed and never opened document written in his own hand a generation ago and they can open it up. Okay. The idea here of Daniel is that this will be verified and true when it comes. And it's intriguing to notice in Revelation, when it walks through these same things, John is told specifically, don't seal up the prophecy. This isn't for a later time. We have to understand that the Bible lays out the return of Jesus, not as being immediate, okay, but imminent. Imminent. Immediate means it's going to happen in five seconds, five days, five months, depending on your time scale. Imminent means it could happen at any moment. There's nothing hindering it. There's nothing in the way of it, okay? That's where we live out our lives. Um, notice also it says, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And then it says, many shall run through and fro, to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Now, some have suggested that's basically just saying the time when this prophecy will be relevant will be a time where international travel will be much more significant, uh, and that information will be expanding on, you know, um, at amazing pace, okay? That may be. I think it's more likely though here that the idea is that with the coming closeness of these things, people are going to be more and more interested in how it's going to turn out, okay? Just recognize that the Roman Empire never stopped to ponder the danger of apocalypse, in the sense of nuclear warfare. That it could all end immediately, not just for them or their family or their city, but for the human race as a whole. We didn't have the ability to destroy ourselves instantaneously until recently. Um, Apocalyptic literature, dystopian realities, these are no longer just things that Christians talk about. Okay? This sense of fear of the future and wondering what it all means even nihilism although you will find some of the earliest preponderances of it in the bible in the book of ecclesiastes written uh, way before jesus came as a modern philosophy of thought it's relatively new 19th century and yet it undergirds and underlies everything we do Um, uh, let's continue in verse five then i daniel looked and behold two others stood One on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen. Now, we've encountered these characters before, both the angels as well as the man clothed in linen. They've been present. In fact, here, when we come back to the stream, uh, basically, we're back where we began in chapter 10. But notice here, he's watching, verse 6, someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters in the stream, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? Okay. He wants to know the timeline. I want you to notice that's not the answer he's given. Not not uh, specifically. Verse 7, I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. Okay. So here... The man clothed in linen, the one who we believe to be Jesus Christ, the one who looks just like the Jesus we find in the book of Revelation, clothed in the same way, shining in the same way, he raises both hands in an oath, usually one does, here it's both, and he swears by God himself that it will be for time, times, and half a time. Okay, We've encountered that phrase before in the book of Daniel. In fact, we've encountered other phrases in the book of Daniel that seem to explain this. Okay, so... Um, some places in the Bible refer to this same timeline in terms of months, 42 months. Some, as we'll see in just a second, refer to it in terms of days. Okay. Um, times, time, and half a time is most likely three and a half years. In fact, there's a good reason even from the book of Daniel to understand it that way because in Daniel chapter 9, we have this prophecy of 77s. And there's a division in the last seven where a covenant is made for one week, but halfway through the week it's broken, leaving us this three and a half period. Okay. So there's this consistency in this idea, but notice here that it doesn't, it doesn't get to the root of Daniel's issue because that's a countdown clock that hasn't started yet. Okay. In fact, he's told when it will start. Um, look again. He says, it'll be times, time, and half a time when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end and these things were finished. Verse eight, I heard, but I did not understand. And I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. And then listen, verse 11. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up. There should be 1,290 days. Okay, And so he says that's where the clock starts. That's where we need to pay attention. That's what Jesus tells Israel to watch for in his day in Matthew 24. He says when you see this, now hit the clock. Start the countdown. Put it on your calendar and start putting X's. That's the idea here. But I want you to notice significantly what it means here. Okay, It means that because of this eternal reality, suffering is temporary. The things that we're going through now will end. Now remember, this time, this three and a half period, year period, the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation, the time like there's never been on the earth before, this is the content of Revelation 13 through 17, and it's a terror It's horrible, it's apocalyptic, it's full of um, uh, cataclysm, uh, earth-shattering realities happening in nature, uh, tremendous warfare, plagues, these types of things. That's what it's talking about, but I want you to notice that even that period won't last a day past its determined time. Three and a half years, 1290 days. 42 months, no more, no less. My mom is fond of quoting that old Persian proverb, This too shall pass. And it's close, it's close to a right understanding because eventually there will be a time where it's not true. The Persian mind, Zoroastrianism, sees life as being cyclical, just moving, constantly moving, not going anywhere, never stopping. That's not what we're talking about here, but we do recognize that where you're at in your life right now, no matter the pain it brings, no matter the difficulty, no matter the hardship, no matter how hard it is to endure, it is temporary. Paul knew a lot personally about suffering. He had physical problems, a physical problem that he called both a thorn in the flesh and a buffeting of Satan. Something that was so difficult in his life that he begged God on multiple occasions to take it away, and God didn't. On top of that, he knew what it was like to suffer for Jesus. He'd traveled the known world at that time. Some have even suggested that Paul may have traveled the world more than anyone before him in terms of miles logged. Um, In doing so, he was shipwrecked on multiple occasions, He was thrown in prison, he was beat, he was dragged out of a city and stoned till death. But somehow he lived through it, got up, dusted himself off, and went on his way. He did not have an easy life, but when he weighs it in the scales in the letter to the church in Corinth, he says, I've come to realize that the sufferings of this world aren't even worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come. Have you ever noticed how relative time is? How, and what I mean by relative is, is not in the big, broad, Einsteinian sense, but just just the fact that the longer you've lived, it changes the way time operates in your life. Do you remember when you were in third grade how long a half an hour recess was? Right? Why does it seem so short? Why do half an hour just blow by? Why is it that now I've been married for 12 years and I feel like it's been the fastest 12 years of my life? It's because we reference Our experience of time to the experience of time as a whole, okay? And so the reason why that half an hour doesn't seem like so much is because you've lived through so many of them. Part of what Paul means there is that the sufferings of this life, be them days or months or years or your entire life, the things that you're going through, the things that seem like a permanent part of who you are, maybe even defining of your identity, not only will they pass, but then there's eternity And with every passing moment of eternity that time referentially will grow shorter less significant now there's some honest things we have to recognize here first God doesn't promise to deliver Israel in this passage from enduring these things from going through them at all And sometimes we're reductionistic and we say the way that God saves is that he spares us from pain. And I would just say, have you read the gospel? Does it sound like the beatings of Christ, like the crucifixion of Christ? Does it sound like the warning he made when he said, all who follow me have signed up to die? Paul looks at his own sins in his life and he says... All the time, as I am now, an apostle of Jesus Christ, years into following Jesus, years into pressing into what it means to be his, I still have the things that I want to do and I do not do them. I still do the things that I don't want to do. Woe is me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Notice what it says in uh, verse 7 again. I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Where does Jesus show up for Israel? When do they find deliverance? When they have no strength left when it's completely over, okay. When, when they have gone through the ringer and there's nothing left, when the power of the holy people is at its end. Okay. Now, first off, that's just good drama. Those are the films we like to watch. Those are the stories we like to tell. Those are the inspirations that we have. Uh, but we need to recognize here that same truth in our lives, that the last day you live on this earth, you breathe before you die, could be the worst. And this is true not just of suffering and things like cancer and all these things that bring death in our world, it's also true of how we deal with sin. God has promised that what he does in us is progressive, that he who is faithful, has began a work in you and will commit it to the day of Christ Jesus. When we talk about sanctification as Christians, we should be continuously growing in Christ. Paul tells young Timothy that his progress in following Jesus should be evident to all. Okay? So that means there's growing and changing and that's a reality. We're moving towards seeing Jesus daily being transformed into his image a little bit more and a little bit more. That is true. But the last transformation... It's the biggest. Whatever progress you make in your life against your own sins, against loving people better, it will never compare to that final critical moment when God makes you what you're supposed to be. And one of the things that that means is a little counterintuitive. It means that understanding your own need for Jesus today as being greater than it's ever been is actually a mark of maturity and not immaturity. We can see this in Paul's own writings. Very early on in his ministry, he writes and he says effectively, uh, I am the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church. Paul never forgot where he came from. He knew that he'd been throwing Christians in prison when God just graciously reached out and said, you're mine, follow me. And so in the beginning, he knows that 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 sets him apart from the other apostles because he was an enemy of God. But second, Later on in his life, he says he's the least of all the saints. In the very last letter we have with, from him, that was probably written at the best weeks before he died, maybe even days before, um, before the emperor beheaded him, he writes and he says, Christ died for sinners, and I'm the chief one. You hear the progression there? Least to the apostles, least to the saints, greatest of sinners. We only have two options. Either trying to follow Jesus made Paul progressively a worse and more wicked person, or his understanding of his need for Jesus grew deeper over time. We have a phenomenon in our world that we call the uncanny valley. We talk about it in terms of animation or animatronics uh, or artificial intelligence. It's the fact that the closer we get to something that's really human, the more disturbing and unhuman it feels when it falls short, okay? And so I, I always use the same illustration, but when you were a kid and your Teddy Rexpin was running out of batteries and its mouth started to chomp slower and the voice slowed down, you were bothered. But even at the time, you knew that it wasn't alive. But if your spouse of 12 years did the same thing, you'd be pretty shaken, right? This uncanny valley means the closer we are, the, the greater the gap feels. And that's what it's like to follow Jesus. Okay? And so what that means for us, where we need to view our lives in term of eternity, is we have to recognize the fact that God delivers us from, but oftentimes he also delivers us through. That there are struggles you have right now And you will wage that battle until it's over, because the whole war is over. And that's actually what life looks like. Dead people don't fight. When God, through his Holy Spirit, makes us alive in Christ, it's the fight that shows that we're alive. And so we shouldn't be discouraged by the fact that the war is not yet over. Go to verse eleven again, from that time, the regular burn offering is taken away, the abomination that makes desolate is set up. there should be one thousand two hundred and ninety days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the thirteen and thirty five days now, two things one, twelve thousand and ninety days is actually not three and a half years it's three and a half years plus one more month, and thirteen and uh, 1,335 days is not even 12,090 days. It's another, uh, it's another 15 or 45 days beyond that, okay? Most likely here, the idea here has to do with the timeline of the end things, okay? That effectively, the Antichrist is put down, like it says at the end of chapter 11, uh, he, he shall come to his end with none to help him on that first timeline, Okay. And then the judgment that we read about happens on that second timeline. And then God reigning through Jesus Christ in his kingdom. That's the final one. That's where the blessing is. Okay. There's, there's pieces to this process. But what I want to draw your attention to, the final observation we need to make this morning is in verse 13. But go your way to the end and you shall rest and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Daniel's not going to see any of these things except one. Because just like was promised in the beginning, he will, out of the dust, be remade, be restored, be resurrected. And he will live and reign with Christ. That's the idea here. But I want you to notice the application. Go your way and you shall rest. Go your way and you shall rest and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. There is a truth to this idea of endurance. But it's an endurance that stems from rest, not an endurance that earns it. The idea here isn't if you just hold on and if you just make it through, everything's going to be okay. No, what do we see? It's those who are written in the book of life. That book is already penned. If you know Jesus Christ, your name has already been added. And so there's work to be done. Like Paul this morning, we might say, I'm still not who I should be. Like Paul, we may say, we groan inwardly because the whole earth is groaning and we groan with it because things are not as they should be. It's fallen and broken and destructive and painful, etc. But we wait and we work from a place of rest. This is... This is a perfect window into what Jesus does. We as Christians, if you look at a seven-day week, we don't see life as six days where you're trying to work and earn your rest. We don't see life as, I've got to get this all done, I've got to have my record right, I've got to accomplish as much as I can because when I'm dead, the clock is done, and then hopefully I've done enough to get by. No, in Jesus Christ, we've been given the Sunday up front. We work from a place of rest. Not all of us take classes in school that we desire to learn from. Sometimes they're just requirements. But when you desire to learn, it doesn't change the fact that getting a good grade can hang over your head. But having the grade up front and saying, don't worry about that, I've already given you an A. For those people who really want it, who really know it, who are ambitious, it doesn't decrease their work, it increases it because now they're free. That's how these ideas fit together. But here's the point. The timeline is laid. The king that we follow is the victor. The ending is known. And so we can live our lives not from a place of worry and anxiety but rest. And that rest is i would say the most active rest the bible says that we're saved by grace which means that there's nothing that we bring to the table it's god's work that has saved us and not ours okay. when you look in history at those in the church who have done the most who have drained the most sweat and blood and tears who have put their life on the line who have spent the most time on the road for the sake of other people Uh, who have worked the hardest, you will always find they had the deepest understanding of grace. That they weren't striving and struggling. Okay. Let me just give you one more metaphor. God in Jesus Christ makes us sons instead of slaves. Okay. But the sons work harder than the slaves. Why? Because it's their family. Because it's their inheritance. Because it's their future the slave it's just a toil it's just a drudgery for someone else and some of you may experience that with god you may say that's my relationship with god it's a drudgery i feel like he expects things of me and if i don't do them then it's all over and and i just martin luther felt that way and he hated god he hated god as a catholic monk and it was when he was reading in the book of romans in chapter 1 and it said that the righteous are justified by faith Somehow that melted, it broke down, and he didn't retire for the rest of his life. Martin Luther was so afraid of a storm that he made a vow, God, if you get me through the storm, I'll be a monk the rest of my days. Fear motivated him to, to do anything to stay alive. How different than Martin Luther, who was so Enraptured with the truth of God's salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word alone, by grace alone, that he was able to stand before the Pope and all of his minions and say, take my life. But you cannot take my truth. Grace. Rest. Peace. If you want to have a significant life, It's not just the judgment that we look forward to that weighs it. It's the cross. If you want to have a significant life, you need to have a deeper understanding of the significance of what Jesus has done. And so just to review this morning, here's what we've seen. We've seen that if our God raises the dead and promises us eternal life, that we need not fear death or anyone who administers it. We've seen that because God promises us eternal life, it means the things we do in this life can have eternal significance. We've seen because God's promised us life after death and eternal life that the things we're suffering right now are temporary and will be weighed in the balance against eternity. And we've seen that we can operate from a place of rest now Let's pray. Lord, Martin Luther said, I have only two days on my calendar, this day and that day. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to think beyond our own funeral, plan beyond our own death. Find permanence in the permanence of our salvation. Teach us, God, when we're in the worst of circumstances to play out those circumstances to the very end. Yes, these are real. Yes, there are hard days ahead. Yes, this may drain me of life itself and then life with Christ eternal. That is the worst case scenario for us as Christians. And in the midst of it, you are changing us and you are present with us and everything that we encounter, you're using for the good of conforming us to be more like Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just turn to the things our culture says are significant to determine our plans. That we wouldn't just determine... Um, look to our, our daily needs our present needs and make that our end goal to eat and have a place to sleep and enough clothes to wear you tell us if we seek first the kingdom and your righteousness then all these things will be taken care of I pray Lord that we would live as subjects of the king who gives life